what we have asked to have done is to have a response. We've asked Gary George, who I believe admits to an amillennialist position, we've asked him to give a response. And I've asked him, as John has asked as well, the purpose of all of this obviously is not to be combative, it is to be highly critical. And what I've asked him to do is stay to the passage, the issue at hand. Yesterday the, the discussion kind of went far and wide. What we want to do is restrict it today. Gary's discussion will, will deal with the discussion at hand. He'll have, John said, eight minutes, is that what you said? For response. And then I'll come back and take questions. If you want questions, they have to come over here for the taping. And again, I may even risk being rude if I have to. We want to limit the discussion. We don't want it to go far and wide. This afternoon's discussion might go a little wider, but this one we want to stay with the subject at hand. But first of all, Gary. Six minutes now? Or do I get another eight? So anyway, it seems to me that Fred may be using Romans 9 through 11 the way a millennialist, premillennialist, would use Revelations 20 as being sort of like the catch basin for the theology that they're trying to advance in ignoring maybe the, the vast rest of material that the scriptures would have in regards to the topic, feeling that this is the last say on it. So I, I want to just caution us and say to Fred, let us please try to give equal authority to all portions of Scripture. Jesus says, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given unto a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. That is a severe warning Christ expressed. It will be taken from you. Now, is Fred advocating that the kingdom that Jesus said would be taken from Israel and be given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof, that we, the church, now, who inherit these promises and these blessings, we now partake of the fruit and the fatness of the olive tree, that somehow the kingdom now is going to be given back to Israel? I can't see that in the New Testament. Because the church age is the age in which all of prophecies converge and culminate. 
as it tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, that these things are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages are come. Is there an age subsequent to the present age? Now, I know this, this has to do with the millennial question, and we'll get into that later. But that's just something to keep in mind. The other thing that disturbed me in Fred's address was this, the true Israel. Who is the true Israel? A true Israelite, he was stating, is a converted Jew presently. He's the true Israel. That offends me as a Christian. Because we read, and I think to be fair to the, to the teaching of Romans, we should have, I th I'm, I'm surprised Fred did not address this unless I wasn't uh, paying attention at the time, but Romans 2 and 28 and 9. He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, but he is a Jew which wasn't, is one inwardly. His circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the flesh, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Yeah, I get carried away, Brother Ward, excuse me. Uh, you know, us white brothers can't preach too well, so I don't want to change your opinion. But if there is this remnant within the church who are the true Israel, does that not destroy the truth that Paul is so emphatic about, that in the body there is neither Jew nor Gentile, that the identities are broken down, and nature now has no place in the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he... Uh, I'm getting a little away here now, but... In Mark 1.14, it says, Now after that John was put into prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. Peter, when he writes, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was, not unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us that they, they did minister things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. This seems to harmonize very well with Petrine theology as he speaks elsewhere, that the church age is the age in which prophecy was foreshadowing. The law foreshadowed good things that were to come. The author of Hebrews insists that they have come right now, they're fulfilled currently in the church age. So an over-exaggeration of a future for Israel could be overstated and a loss to us could be had when we fail to recognize the current blessings that are actualized in the church age, which seems to be a culminating age in which the promises had pointed forward to. And we don't want to miss that very, very significant point. As far as the replacement theology, Fred seems to have difficulties with the replacement theology. But remember, this is, I think, a very important text and not one that's uh, attended to very well, but in Acts chapter 3, verse 23, Peter is quoting Moses who says that the Lord your God will raise up unto you a prophet. Him ye shall hear. Peter says, 3.23, Every soul 
which shall not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from, notice this, among the people. So now what happens to unbelievers who do not hear the voice of the prophet? See that you refuse not him that speaketh from heaven. That's where the true prophet now speaks. As a matter of fact, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he talks about Christ, who of course never physically went to Ephesus. He says how Christ came and preached to you who were far off. He came and preached to you peace to those that were far off. So that's how the prophet reaches the Gentiles. It's through, uh, via through the apostles and those that go forth with the gospel. As Jesus says, he that heareth you, heareth me, and he that despiseth you, despiseth me. But the Jews that rejected to hear the voice of the prophet would be cut off. I would like Fred to have give more, given more attention to the olive tree. Because if, the way Fred expressed it, Jews in the future, or the nation, it's, and that seemed to be a, a problem there, Fred. I don't think you made a distinction between the nation and Jews. It seems to me that you were say, saying that there's going to be a national restoration. I don't see that kind of thing in the New Testament at all. It's always individual, particular redemption of individuals that are brought in to the body or, or grafted into the olive tree. How many olive trees are there in Romans 11? There's only one olive tree. There's only one root. The emphasis, I think, in Romans 11 is the root, not so much the branches. It's the partaking of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. And so when the Jews, future Jews, I have no problem with that, and I don't think uh, many are millennialists would either, a future for Jews is simply going to bring them into the body of Christ before the second coming of the Lord Jesus. We're not going to retrogress and go back to another covenant. That waxed old and is ready to vanish. The first covenant had uh, divine ordinances of a worldly sanctuary. The first covenant had associations to a worldly sanctuary. But now there's the temple of the living God that's made up of spiritual stones that God dwells in by the Spirit in the new body, the new temple of the living God. I don't know how much I'm criticizing Fred, but I want to praise the Word of God for what I think it says, I guess. Why don't you, uh, I think the mic works now, so back. How many minutes does he get? Stay, stay over here. It is precisely that kind of rhetoric <laughs> that has confused the discussion for too long. I nowhere implied in any way that there would be regression to the Old Covenant. I nowhere denied that, that the church realizes Israel's blessings. Go back and get my book, Theology of Fulfillment, and I emphasize that on every page. I nowhere deny that we partake of Israel's blessings. I nowhere deny that this is a time of fulfillment. I nowhere deny that. In fact, I affirm it over and again. You've heard me do it. That kind of thing confuses the discussion. And when I started off by saying that Romans 9 to 11 is the normative passage, I nowhere said 
this is the exclusive passage. I said it's the normative passage because this is the place where Paul gives his exposition of the doctrine of Israel and the church. I can go to a passage which might seem to emphasize the distinction. I can go to another passage like he's quoted in Peter that can emphasize the unity. I have to deal with how these two ideas are brought together. That is what is done in Romans 9 to 11. And it's unfair to say that I have exclusivized Romans 9 to 11. I never did that. I'm simply saying that this is the touchstone where Paul has dealt with it specifically. Every exegetical argument must be brought into the picture. In that, he's right. First Peter, everywhere. All of them must be brought into the picture. But what I'm saying is all the data must be brought in. And if we go to these passages where Israel and the church are spoken of as one, I will stand here and say, yes, that's true, they are one. That is one half of the teaching of Romans 11. The Romans 2 argument. I did mention it, it was in the paper, and again, it was overlooked that in Romans 2, as well as in Romans 9, as well as statements like John 1, verse 47, the true Israelite, we're speaking of a believing Israelite. It is not a widening that's in view, it is a narrowing that is in view, and it would be hard to prove otherwise, I think. There is neither Jew nor Greek in the church. The soteric distinctions have been obliterated. But just as husband and wife are one, does not mean they're the same. And that's all I'm saying. There is unity, yet with distinction. And that argument, again, is one half of the evidence. There is more information to deal with than simply these verses that emphasize unity. That unity is there, and that unity is real, and I've emphasized that with the one tree. That's not all the information there is. I'm saying we have to take it all in. Gary said that he, that I have minimized the blessedness of the church age. Again, get my booklet, The Theology of Fulfillment, and you'll see me argue just like an amillennialist. And I think this has been the strong suit of amillennialism for years. Amillennialism has expounded at great length how in this age we realize the old promises and how we are brought in to enjoy Israel's blessings. And for too long, premillennialists denied that. It is a very strong suit of amillennialism. All I'm saying again is that that's one half of the evidence. There is the now and there is the not yet. What happens if an individual Israelite rejects Christ, he asked. We all agree on that. That doesn't answer the issue if there is still a promised future for ethnic Israel. And again, I have to emphasize, and, and I, I won't say that, stupid pejorative. In Romans 11, 1, Paul brings up the argument, we are dealing with Israel as a people. Will they as a people be cut off? It has been said they will be. Paul says, God forbid. I like Paul's statements better. And I don't think I'm confusing the issue there. I'm not reading much into that, I don't think. Um, again, then, in summary, there is this position, just like with the kingdom that we've talked about, there is the now, and it is a very real realization of the old promises, that in no way obviates these promises to the not yet. Same with this teaching of Israel and the church. There is strong teaching of their unity, and I emphasize that in the paper. There's one tree with one root. 
but the branches are never confused. And you can say all day long that Paul speaks of the trunk more than he does the branches, but that's not what he deals with most. He speaks of the branch, the natural branch being grafted in again. His point are, is these two branches and how they relate together. They too, never, dis, never identified, they too have been brought together into one. And I think that accounts for all of the evidence and not half of it. Can I say something? Surely. I thought I was supposed to criticize you and you not criticize me. <laughs> Now I, have a, now I have a question. Now I have a question. How will the restoration of Jews impact the church? Well, Romans chapter 11. And what I've asked for is a critique of... of is that life from the dead? Is that what you're going what to refer Paul to? What Paul is saying here in Romans 11 is that having provoked the Jews to jealousy, they will come in. And in verse 12, he emphasizes that if by their falling, riches have come to the world, what shall we think of their fullness? And again, in verse 15, their acceptance or their receiving. Those, that terminology has to be packed. Paul is pushing it here. There is fullness and there is acceptance and that is in contrast to their present rejection. And he says there are implications involved. If their casting away meant blessings to the Gentiles, what should we say of their fullness? He's promising a worldwide unprecedented time of blessing. It seems to me it would be, maybe I shouldn't take up so much time. It seems to me that if... It seems to me, you know, if you're going to exegete this portion the way in which you have done, and if you want to have uh, Jewish unbelief, of course, does allow mercy for Gentiles. And Gentile mercy provokes Israel to believe. And their believing then triggers something else, and that would seem to be, and this is how a pre-tribulationalist would take it, life from the dead would be the innumerable company of Gentiles now being saved. So that the work in the, among Gentiles in the church age is not going to be as outstanding as it would be, will be after the restoration of national Israel. You wouldn't, though, take it that way, I take it. I'm not sure I follow your saying, your, your argument. He is simply saying that there is a time of rejection which has resulted in Gentile blessing. That, in turn, will re 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 uh, be followed by a time of Israel's in-gathering, which, in turn, will have worldwide ramifications. That's the art. That's that's not the art. That's a plain statement of verses 12, verses 15. And again, I have to ask, what is Paul's argument here? Paul's argument is stated in chapter 11 and verse 1. What is the future for Israel as a people? And he argues from beginning to the very end of the chapter that they have this future. And to deny it is to fly right in the face of Paul's whole argument. It's not just a corner of a some text that I've pulled out. Some some obscure portion of a verse. This is Paul's argument developed over and again through this chapter. John. Uh, on page three, at the bottom of A, 
Their advantage is precisely this, Paul says, their promises have never been revoked. And I assume there you mean the individual Jewish person or the nation as a nation. As a nation. All right. Now, it seems to me that is the precise argument the covenant theologian uses when we talk about infant baptism. He says, was the child included in the covenant in the Old Testament? And we say, where is an instance in the New Testament where a child was baptized or commanded to be baptized? And he will say, is there one covenant? Is that covenant still in force? You show me a New Testament text that does away with baptizing the children of the covenant. And it seems to me what you're doing is you're getting a concept of the covenant promises to the nation of Israel totally out of the Old Testament scriptures, which is the only place one can get them, and then saying you have to interpret the New Testament scriptures in the light of those promises in the Old Testament. And you're saying that these promises are still in effect. And when you say the promises have been revoked, that's your words, Jesus. I say absolutely no. There's not one single promise that God ever made to the nation of Israel that's been revoked. They are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And there is something that goes beyond what he promised to the nation of Israel. Everything promised to Israel is typological. The Sabbath is typological. The priesthood is typological. But so is the nation and so is the land. It's all typological. And it seems to me it's like the, 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 the boy whose father says, if you will graduate from high school with a B average, I'll get you a car for college. And he passes with the B average, and his dad says, here's the keys to your wheels that are in the garage. And he goes out in the garage wondering what kind of a Corvette or VW he's going to get, and there is a brand new Jaguar fully equipped. And he goes in and says, gee, I thought you were going to give me a VW. If, if a Jew is converted to Christ and inherits Christ and inherits heaven, how can not inheriting the land of Palestine, whether it's an individual or a nation, have anything to do with God going back in his promises when he gives something greater? That's one of the things. So we're not talking about doing away with any covenant. I understand what you're saying. We're talking about fulfillment. And along with this, then, I would say, is there a different covenant for the nation of Israel where it has covenant blessings promised to it is that, that is totally different from the covenant under which we embrace Christ. And I have one more question right. to answer that one. Or though. All right. First, you're saying it is all realized, fulfilled in Christ. And I'm not going to argue that there is a lot of significance in that. But what I am saying is that Paul argues it different here. Paul is asking here, what is the future of the nation? And in response to that question, he says, the, for these people, the promises still stand. People or nation? You're using two words. Here. Okay, okay, let's... let's see, it's, 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 it okay, seems to me right, you're going was, back and forth and saying, we're talking about the people. Okay, you asked me, I'll tell you. And then you're talking you. about the nation. And you're talking about national restoration. Jeremiah chapter 31. Ah. Go ahead. This is what we're going to cover tomorrow. Jeremiah chapter 31 and 
and verse 36. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, the foundations of the earth stretched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. My point in appealing to these verses is not to try to get into Randy's territory. My point is simply to show that there is no distinction between the seed as a people and as a nation. Now, it's been said yesterday repeatedly, and today it's been pushed on me again. You're forcing a distinction. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm taking the terminology. You're pushing in, I think, a distinction that is not made. Paul's question is, what is the people? What is their future as a people? And he says that the covenants still stand. That's the question I think your side needs to answer. What do we do with Paul's interpretation here? We can say all day it's referred to in Christ. That's not the way Paul treats it. When you say the covenant, now what covenant do you mean? You well, mean in verses the covenant 20, with Jeremiah 31 is not the covenant that is made with you and me today. Am I saying that? Yes. No. I'm saying Paul quotes in verses 26 and 27 segments of the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the New Covenants and refers to them as the hope of Israel. He's going to get in that tomorrow, but I'd have another question. But on page 9, you, you, you use the word, you interchange the word nation and you interchange the word people. Uh, that we're not forcing this on you uh, when you say uh, in the middle of the first paragraph, uh, not a remnant only, but the nation itself. And then in the next paragraph, curiously, Paul begins this section with a question about the destiny of ethnic Israel as a people. Will they be cast off forever? That is, as a people. And I'm Paul says no, and we will say no, but we will say yes as a nation. And we will say yes as national privileges, land, temples, sacrifices, and all of that. So it, it seems to me you're, you're raising a smokescreen here. You're the one who's making the distinction between nations. And you want, you want the people to be in the covenant, but then you want to sneak in the national privileges that makes Israel a nation. Now, the, the, the whole business of the Old Testament, the people of God, the chosen people of God, you equate that with the nation of Israel. No, I didn't. Oh, yes, I said you the did. opposite in the paper. Huh? I said the opposite. No, you, you, you equate these two on page 9, I think you do this. Look at the, the next paragraph on page 9. But there's still another consideration. In verse 29, Paul grounds his conclusion that all Israel will be saved on the immutability of God's decree and promise. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That is, God's decree can never be altered. And with that, Paul condemns the replacement idea on theological grounds. Is it not strange, but a dangerous idea, that God's election may be altered? And by God's election, you mean here the nation of Israel. That's right. Now, I'm not making a distinction. I'm using the terms people and nation interchangeably. And I'm saying okay, that's what who the is elected does. here? Is the nation elected or there's people within the nation elected? Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay, I'll let it pass. I'll, I'll, I'll go back to what I said yesterday about Humpty Dumpty. Okay, one more, one more question and I'm finished. Uh, on page 15, we want you to have a chance. 
Down near the bottom of page 15, uh, not the bottom, bottom of the first paragraph. The question, uh, nor does Paul indicate such a stripping away of the prophet's message. Indeed, at the very outset of his discussion, he affirms that these covenants do indeed still belong to Israel. And if you mean Israel as a nation, that they are promised specific blessings of being placed among the other nations as over the other nations, then we would violently object. Because in those passages, he says, this is given to the, to the nation of Israel. The covenants, the giving of the law. All of those things were given to Israel as a nation, but they were all conditional upon obedience to the covenant. And then you say this. <clears throat> the question then is this. What exegetical warrant is there for allowing only the part of the covenant's promise, that is the forgiveness of sins, and not the whole of them. And to me, here's the heart of the difference. And, and what we tried to show yesterday is, does Acts chapter 2 say that the heart of the prophecy to Joel is salvation? And we would respond to you by saying, here, where's the exegetical warrant for adding a natural interpretation of something in an Old Testament passage when a New Testament passage spiritualizes it and says it is fulfilled. So you're asking us to do what the covenant theologians asked us to do. Show us in the New Testament where you aren't to baptize children of the covenant. And you're saying, show us in the New Testament someplace where God specifically categorically says the natural promises to the nation of Israel are null and void. It doesn't say that. We but, agree. It, but so, so <laughs> we agree. So what we're down to is our understanding of the kingdom is determined either by the Old Testament scriptures or the New Testament okay, scriptures. This is where and, and, and I am saying that your view is rooted in understanding a view of the kingdom from the prophecies given in the Old Testament without taking the New Testament. Okay, two, two things. My approach is not rooted in simply Old Testament. It's the same mistake I think that David pointed out yesterday in your Acts 2. That's part of the evidence. We have to take in the whole of the evidence. And again, I'm going to push all of these arguments against this position. Go hither and yon, but I want someone to do with, deal with what Paul is saying in Romans 11. His argument is the people, as a people, have the promises remaining. I'm not reading... We'll agree with that. Okay. We will agree with that. Then we agree. The people as a people. Yeah. Not as a nation with land promises and political situations involved in it. No, no, that's not the same thing. So you see, that's again, what, that's again what, I think, I don't think the burden of proof lies on me to prove otherwise. I'm saying the whole Bible if, stands. You're you, saying part has been stripped away. You prove that. No. We're, you're saying here is the Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel. They stand. You showed me the New Testament where it specifically says they're done away. And we're saying that in the New Testament, the church does not replace Israel. You're fighting, you're fighting covenant theology. The church does not replace Israel. Israel was never the church. And the church is not Israel. The church, according to the book of Ephesians, is a new man made up out of Israel and out of Gentile. It's a whole new ballgame. 
And, and you're, you're fighting a straw dummy of covenant theology when you talk about Israel replacing the church. I don't believe that. But again, we haven't gotten back to Romans 11. In Romans 11, there is the distinction very clearly pointed out with the unity. That fits very well with the Ephesians passage you quote. Your interpretation of the Ephesians passage, though, does not fit with Romans 11. I want to deal with Romans 11. Well, I will finish this with quoting what you said. You said, so what does this passage say to the millennium of specific not law? And I will say none. <laughs> there's nothing in there about the land. There's nothing in there about the nation, all of that. Okay, finish. All right, go ahead. Um, thank you, John. All right, on page, uh, page three, uh, you mentioned, you made an allusion to Hosea that I want to, uh, I want to see if I could get some clarification from you on. Uh, you said... Okay, we'd like to hear. He's saying on page three, I on page three, to Hosea, yeah. and he would like some clarification on that. Just above C, explanation of Israel's failure to obtain the blessings, there's a paragraph, and he says, God will woo her, the adulterous wife, and in the end, she will come back. So what I want to do is, is take us back briefly to... Hosea chapter 3 and see if uh, if Fred maybe could give me an explanation of what he understands chapter 3 to be because I see a contradiction when he applies this with Romans chapter 11 in this context well tell me what you're saying how it contradicts in chapter 3 well I'm trying to understand how how did you see you're, you're well, saying here that that um, that God is going to woo Israel back and what I'm saying is what I see in chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 is is the Gentile church or I'm using Gentile loosely here. <laughs> uh, I'm seeing the church as being this adulterous wife according to uh, the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel. In other words, it's, it, this is a different woman. It isn't Israel. And if it is, then that means verse 5 is somebody else entirely. And so I'm seeing an inconsistency, in other words. Do you understand what You're I'm saying? You're saying verse 1 refers to the church. Right. And so where does the burden of proof lie? <laughs> Well, what I'm, no, I'm not saying that. No, I'm not. See, I'm not saying I disagree with where you stand as far as something in the future. I, I can't reconcile it either. Yeah. <laughs> well, verse know. 4, for example, mm -hmm. specifies that there's a time when the children of Israel will abide many days without a king, without a prince, mm -hmm. without a sacrifice, without an image, without, an, that is, without their identification as they are now. But afterwards shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Right. That sounds like Romans right. 11. And I agree with you. I'm, I'm not okay. disagreeing. Okay. But I just wanted to understand what you meant. What do you feel Hosea 3, 1 means? I'll leave it. I think the picture is of Israel in her time of apostasy. And then as the passage goes on, being brought back. That's what I mean by wooing the adulterous wife. Page 9, you talk a little bit about uh, Romans 11, 1, and so on, and uh, arguing that that has to refer then to uh, the destiny of Israel and so on. But I think if you read Romans 11, 1, the Apostle Paul there, after he says, uh, uh, God forbid that uh, we could possibly imagine that God has cast away his people, does not use national or political Israel uh, as an illustration that God hasn't cast them away. He uses himself. He says, he says for I am. Mm -hmm. 
And so it, it is individual that he's talking about. It's not talking about nationalistic there. And Again, I don't think I, that when he, when he goes all through here, when he is talking about, as he did in Romans 9, when he continually identifies the remnant, the remnant is always identified with the Jews and not with the Gentiles. And here he's identifying again with, uh, with, with Romans uh, with 11, um, 4 and 5 there. He's specifically identifying the remnant to individuals, not to a national uh, people I keep, as a politics. I keep getting pushed into this either-or situation. Well, Paul uses his own illustration here. He says, but I... But Paul uses himself as a sample of the remnant, which in turn in his argument is a sampling of the whole. But he what never I'm says, saying is He follow, never says it's the whole, and he never oh, says yes. that it'll be restored. What I'm here. saying is you follow the argument through the passage. Yeah. It is... I, the I Apostle Paul, as a sample of the remnant, as a sample of the whole. The, nation, the people, as a nation, will be restored. No, he doesn't say they will be restored there. He says they will be restored. Well, what is verse 24 in. saying then? He'll the natural branches will be brought back in. That and he makes the distinction between the natural and the and wild. I, and I think that's John's point, is that, that being grafted in is in fact what Ephesians 2 is really talking about. It's not that there's two, two things. It's not that the church and, and, uh, is, is now Israel, because I, I've, I've never argued that. I never, I never even heard that argument other than from some of these, uh, from a few covenant theologians. Uh, a few. Uh, <laughs> but for the most part, it, hey, it most, most all mills that I know don't even argue that. Again, I've got to say, Romans 11 makes the distinction between the natural branches and the wild branches. It is the natural branches being brought back. And I keep getting shown these other verses which speak of the Israel's unity. I grant that. I don't deny it. I'm saying there is a distinction within the unity that you haven't yet dealt with in Paul's distinction between the branches. Paul, Paul's arguments, I, I would contend, all through the entire book of Romans, and, and maybe highlighted in Romans 9, 10, and 11, is, is in fact that the Jews still have hope to be saved. And that the way they are saved is precisely the way that he is saved. I am an example that God has not cast away all of his people, that God in fact still is sovereign and he is still, according to his sovereign election, choosing out a remnant Good. from them. But it is one new people. Not an old people, not a combination of old and new. It is one Did we new agree? people. One new people with distinction within unity. The two branches. <laughs> two branches. And again, I'm, on a, I'm going to push it. You haven't dealt yet with the distinction in Romans 11. <clears throat> Go ahead. Uh, I just had some questions that I'm really not clear about. All right. Uh, you have on page 12 in the relation of Israel and the church, that uh, emphasized sentence where you say, if we can speak of a promised future for ethnic Israel in any sense, then is it impossible to speak of her as being replaced by the church? Uh, my, my question would be, is not the future promise for ethnic Israel her salvation? And when she is saved, does she not become a part of the church? Certainly. 
What I'm pointing out here is that not just in Paul, but in the prophets themselves, the burden of their preaching was Israel's salvation, the forgiveness of sins. But in the prophets themselves, they promised the forgiveness of sins and, and, and. There was never this false dichotomy that I'm getting pushed into today. That's a dichotomy that is made somewhere else, but it's not made in their, their preaching. And I don't believe it's made in Paul's, Paul's exposition of it here. And in fact, in Romans 9, he opens up the discussion, speaking of Israel as a people who have the covenants, the giving of the... I mean, he couldn't be more specific. And when he wraps up the argument at the end of chapter 11, he speaks them again in terms of having the covenants. And if he speaks of having the covenants and doesn't change the meaning of it, then I am not under obligation to say he restricts it. That's a hermeneutical move that the text does not specifically endorse. Well, the, the, the thing I guess I'm confused about is what, in your opinion, is the difference between ethnic Israel that is a member of Christ's church and the Gentiles who are Could a member of Christ's church? Could we look at it as a church? subset? A union, a distinction within unity. And I, I, I use the example of God the Father and God the Son. I use the example of the man and a wife. We don't have to say that unity means identification. Just because they are one does not mean they are the same. Now, as far as practical manifestations of that, how would the differences be different? Like, for instance, I know that dispensationalists believe that there will be a time when ethnic Israel is actually reinstituting the sacrifices in lieu of the Lord's Supper. All of that, all of that is a secondary issue, and I really don't want to get into it. I don't hold to that. I'm, not, okay. I'm really not settled on the question, to be honest, but it is a secondary issue to this whole thing, and it really doesn't affect which, side, which way we decide uh, on this. Well, I, I just, the, the last question would just be then restating the, the, the previous question. What practical difference would there be manifested between an ethnical... Practical difference now, I don't see any. Uh, practical difference in the future, I think, is what Paul is arguing. That's what I mean, actually. That there will be a prominence given to the nation of Israel when she is brought back, and that will result in worldwide blessing. Oh, no, prominence. But she's not lording over the church. I never said that. And the Old Testament never says that. Yeah, there's, oh, no, and I didn't say dominance. I very, very purposely said prominence. Well, I came here for answers. I have more questions. But yeah. <laughs> the question I have is, uh, Romans 8 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And also Christ said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, the church. And these verses here, 18 through uh, 21, it says... Boast, Chapter 11, you mean? Yeah. It says, Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. My question is, what, what happens to the church when Israel is restored in this way that you're saying? That's one of my questions always. This is a portion that always puzzled me when okay. I was in dispensationalism. Well, good question. And I think the answer is implied in verses 12 and 15. And that is, just as Israel's rejection temporarily has resulted in Gentile blessing, so her fullness will bring about worldwide blessing. 
Will that include the church with the oh, worldwide yes, blessing? Definitely. So we'll be in oh, with them. Definitely. In that. Yeah. yeah. What does it mean, though, when it says that in uh, if verse 21, if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he spare also not thee. I can never understand that verse. Well, that was the application I made in the, in the exposition time, the first lesson, that Israel had her place naturally. She began to think, though, that her place was a rightful one because of natural descent or because of whatever personal rights. And that's completely wrong-headed thinking. And Paul said it's because of that kind of thinking they were cut off. Even so we, and you can look at it in terms of individuals, you can look at it in terms of nations, societies, however you want. When we get to the point that we think that because we have enjoyed God's blessings, we have a right to it and we're not going to be cut off, Paul says you think of them. If they were natural branches and got cut off because of unbelief, you better take care. The goodness and the severity of God. Lloyd. Uh, Fred, in regard to this issue of who we're talking about in the passage, are we talking about an elect remnant of Israel, or are we talking about the nation of Israel? If you read uh, verse 15 of chapter 11, we have a there. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be from the dead? I think that settles the issue as to whether we're talking about national Israel or some seed drawn out, because the seed was never rejected. Exactly. Paul's but the nation was rejected, and that verse makes no sense at all exactly. if we're not talking about a national ethnic Israel. Paul is contrasting. He's not speaking of the remnant. He's contrasting the remnant with all Israel. I believe so. You know, if Elder Ward had spoken on this last night, we'd have been done. That's what he said. First of all, I want to say I think there's a conspiracy by not having any caucus so we could be alert enough to understand all this. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just like to say, uh, in regard to the passage, it seems like the question is, is who's, who's, who Israel is and what's being uh, said in verse 1 and 2. But what I'd like to point out is that, uh, and I've wrestled with this, and I'm not going to try to tell your part or to give the answer, but I do want to write, you haven't answered my questions, I'll just say that. Okay. Uh, in verse 1, what he says, hath God cast away his people, God forbid, and the argument has been made already that he's, Paul refers to himself, and I think that's a point to be made, because in verse 2, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew, and uh, he goes on to give illustrations, and you have down through this, verse 7, Israel hath not, hath not obtained, but the election hath obtained it. So he's drawing a contrast through here between the, those who have and those who have not. And the difference, the distinction he makes is in the elect. And, what, and when you come to verse 15, and they're speaking of rec reconciliation, now there's a whole lot in between there, but uh, uh, when you come down to uh, verse 15, which was just referred to a moment ago, I hadn't planned to address that, but the reconciling here of the world for the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world. I think Paul is still dealing with this matter that it is uh, God's salvation to the uh, world that's being made. In other words, the John 3.16, you know, the Arminians argue that is the argument for that Christ died for the whole world. He's showing here the salvation that God has made in the world. Now we Gentiles are brought into it and so forth. Down in verse 22, uh, Paul says, 
Uh, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, thou shalt also be cut off. And I agree that the uh, Gentiles are subject to this and the out, but there's a, a verse over in Matthew 21, I think, relates to that. And uh, it's in yeah, Matthew... I, I quoted that one in the paper. 21, 18? Uh, well, go ahead. I, I think that's verse 18. Now, in the morning, as he returned to the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. Now, some would think that that is a illustration he's giving of what was going to happen. They were going to be set aside, and the Gentiles are now going to be brought in. Now, that brings us to the thought of the, uh, of the branches, and I... I, as I have gone through this through years, and I can't prove everything now what I have, but the branches are insignificant. Somebody said there was a root that counted, and I think that's true. And you have that down in verse 25. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest, lest we should... Uh, 16.25. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, that lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And my understanding would be that that is uh, going to continue. And they can't, they're Jews that are saved now. They're brought in, and they are brought, it's like being brought from the dead. The thought of the coming from the dead is a branch. The, the, the Jews, they were cut off. They're set aside. Actually, they should have been excluded completely outside if the gospel is now going to Gentiles. And Isaiah had prophesied that. But the problem I see is that the mystery here, I don't know what your interpretation of the mystery, I didn't quite get that. This is what I was looking for the answer to, but the mystery to me is not uh, the church in this, in this sense, but it's the, it's the making of the two into one. And you have that in, in uh, chapter 16, I think, gives us the answer. In chapter 16, verse 25, he says, Now to him that is a power to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. The mystery is the fact that God has now put the two together, and I believe that in the end, if there is a great in gathering, they're going to be individually okay. coming in. Now, I, I still don't see how we can have the well, nation the, 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 the view you've expressed is exactly the, the traditional view of the replacement position. The mystery, though, the mystery is not the inclusion of the Gentiles. Paul identifies the mystery as that, Hati, blindness in part, the blindness of Israel is partial and temporary. It is in part until. That is what he specifies the mystery to be. And if it's temporary, partial blindness, that is the mystery, then the promise itself still stands. Now, so far as the national question is concerned, Paul, again, starts the discussion Hath God cast away his people? And it's a quotation from the Old Testament. It would be difficult to find any other meaning in the Old Testament of a distinction between Israel, I mean, between Israel as a nation, Israel as a people. And to put it in here, I think, is to find it out here somewhere, but not in the text. Yeah, but in, in Deuter and that's a quote from uh, Deuteronomy, probably. 
when you say, hath God cast away his people? Oh, just even Hosea to that effect, Jeremiah. Yeah. I, I quoted a couple from... But, but you have also, and you go back to the 29.4, I, I didn't have time to follow through on that, but yeah. uh, you refer to that. But in that 29, 30, and 31 passage, it seems to me that the conditional covenant, if they kept it, yes, and that was what made the nation. That made the nation, and it was conditional. They didn't keep it. They broke it before Moses got down off the mount. And so therefore... They didn't keep it, so therefore there were curses that would come mm -hmm. on them, and the curses have come. But Paul makes the point here that back in chapter 9 even, at the very outset of this discussion, that Israel's future is not grounded in Israel's merit. Israel's future is grounded in God's promise. But, and but, it is, what he argues here is that God is saying, because I made an oath, not because you deserve it, because I made an oath, I'll keep my word. But the, the covenant that was made with them as a nation was conditional. They broke it, and therefore they now, the only promise they have is coming as, as a Gentile to us in Christ. And that's my argument right there. You're, you're mixing covenants. Yeah, that's right. You're right. Mixing covenants. Yeah. Right. Done. <coughs> Good. Romans 11. Good thing. Now, from what I understand in verse 26, I'm sorry, I thought it was. Romans 11, now it as verse 26, and a couple of questions. And so all Israel shall be saved, as written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now, you look at that as a cataclysmic thing that Christ will do at the end of the age, and then there will be the taking away of those people that come unto Christ to form a, uh, a national entity in Palestine. Right so. now, I don't want to throw more terminology into it than right, Paul but I, just does, wonder but what you I relate it, yes, to the acceptance, or the fullness of verse 12 and the acceptance of verse 15. Okay. A thing that you know, bothers me here now, verse 14, in conjunction... 14? Yeah, verse 14, in conjunction with verse 26, Paul says, If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. Are the sum of them, is that continuity or discontinuity with verse 26, the all of them? Okay, Paul here is dealing with his hopes in his ministry to see as many children of Israel saved as, as he could possibly see. But In okay. verse 26, he is speaking at the culmination of his argument, not now of a remnant not now of a few, but of all Israel. Okay. So then after that, verse 31. Even so have these also not now believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. That's verse 12. Now, what's, what's the difference between that and verse 26 where it is the Christ that's to come in a, um, well, the difference, in a moment, a cataclysmic event? The difference is one of time frame. In verse 31, he's speaking in terms of what he already said, back in verse 12, that their diminishing has been our blessing. That's the same in verse 31. Even so, these have now not believed. But in verse 26, he's speaking at the time following this time of the fullness of the Gentiles. So he speaks in two different time frames, and that's the difference. Yeah. So to equate these two is to confuse his teaching about the remnant now and the fullness of Israel then. And that's a contrast in Paul in Romans 11, not a, not a parallel situation. So then he reverts back in verse 31 to 
that which is in continuity yeah, with verse 14. Yeah, and that's what he express, expressly what he says with the word now. Okay, so in verse 14 we have, like we would go A out present and evangelize. Situation. Mm -hmm. In verse 26, Christ's coming. Mm -hmm. In verse 31, us going out and evangelizing yeah. again. All right, this one I'm seeing. David? Someone asked me if I was going to stand up and defend Fred. I said, no, I think he's been doing a good job of that himself. I wanted to ask uh, just concerning verse 25. This is something that uh, I guess a majority of some of you in here would not uh, even have a consideration of. But Fred, if you would think with me about it, and maybe some would want to interact. I don't know. When Paul speaks about the mystery in verse 25, he says, Blindness is part, in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. It seems so often that fullness in the scheme here is related to the present work of God among the Gentiles. It seems to me that grammatically it's possible to take fullness of the Gentiles to relate to the riches or life from the dead that will mark Israel's reception. And one reason I say that is because it seems that in the times of the nations that mark this present age, God is dealing not only with Israel in judgment, but also with the nations in judgment. But the prophets look beyond that time to a time when not only Israel would be visited with greater blessing, but the nations as well. And the oracles of the, against the nations in the prophets, the major prophets especially, Isaiah chapter 13 through 23, the oracles against the nations, followed by the little apocalypse of chapters 24 through 27. Uh, it seems that there's this pattern of judgment on the nations presently. So is it possible then that fullness of the Gentiles is actually a future reference to that greater blessing? I think it has to be, and I think that's Paul's whole contrast, even back in verse 12 where he uses the term fullness. He's speaking of a now situation of rejection against a future time of fullness. And there's the point of contrast. And if we stick the fullness back into the now rejection, we've got chaos. Paul is contrasting the two. And he identifies the time factor in verse 15, I mean verse 25 as compared with verse 12 and 15, and then with verse 26 in eschatological terms. Fred, I, I would just like to make a simple statement or ask uh, an answer to it. You base your uh, future kingdom on um, Revelation chapter 20, the first 10 verses. I think it says six times it mentioned a, a thousand well, years. Well, I didn't build anything on that. I, um, no, but that's the time frame you're putting it into. That really is this it. afternoon's discussion. Okay, be, uh, I, I have some notes here in my own study that in uh, these 10 verses... Never do we read Israel, Jerusalem, Palestine, restored Jewish kingdom, regathering of the Jews, temple, restored might, Jewish sacrifices. It might be good, Claire, if you could say this for this afternoon, because that's really the topic at hand. Okay, I just want to ask this one question. Do you have a passage to base your future kingdom into this? Oh, yeah. Of a thousand years? Oh, no, the thousand years time period is not specified anywhere else. That's grand. No, nowhere else. No. <laughs> and even though all these other things are not mentioned either, somehow we say that's where it must be. Yeah. Okay, thank you. You've been very patient, Fred. Thank you. Can you do one more? I don't know. <laughs> Et tu, Brute. Page. 
This will be the conclusion. Page 12. We have a couple questions here. Page 12. Relation of Israel and the church. And you have Israel, but we also have the nations. Nowhere is, is the church ever referred to as the nations. So then, what is the relation of Israel and the church? One hermeneutical lesson rising out of this passage is that if we can speak of a promised future for ethnic Israel in any sense, then it is impossible to speak of her, that's nation, as being replaced by the church. And I repeat what I said throughout this whole paper, you constantly set up the, the opposition of Israel as an ethnic people and as I a don't church. set it in opposition. You right do. Here, here. I set them together. Now, this is here. You're saying, your argument is... John, I'm using them interchangeably. I'm not putting them opposed. It's interchangeable I'm using them. Oh, that's You're exactly. distinguishing between Israel as a people and Israel as a nation. That's what I'm saying you have to establish. Okay. I'm using the terms interchangeably. I'm not opposing the one from the other. So that, there, that, that the... All right. Okay. I will... I will uh, I don't agree with you, but that's okay. Page 13. You said 12 was the last. That, 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 Gentiles, that Gentiles should share in Israel's blessings was not at all hidden. Israel's Where are we? Prophecy, page 12, the, uh, oh. Oh, the, the, the end of the last large paragraph. Down page 13. Bottom. Yes, okay. on page 13. The Gentiles should share in Israel's blessing was not hidden at all. Israel's prophet plainly spoke of it. But the Gentiles, but that the Gentiles should enjoy these blessings apart from Israel was something hitherto unrevealed. This is the mystery which Paul claims to make known. Now, where in Romans 11 or any place else does the New Testament show that these blessings are to be enjoyed apart from the Gentiles were apart from Israel. That's setting up... Well, that, no, no, that's exactly Paul's statement in Romans 11.25. It's ex precisely his statement. And I want to stop you before you contradict okay. it, so I, I do, I'm doing you a favor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Paul says, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit. What is the mystery? Hati. That blindness is partial and temporary. Mm -hmm. And if it's partial and temporary, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, mm -hmm. then Paul is saying is that Gentiles are enjoying the blessings apart from Israel for now. Uh, but the, that, the, that the Old Testament foresaw this as the mystery. It seems in Ephesians that the mystery is not that there's going to be Gentiles enjoying something apart from Israel. But the mystery is that the Gentile is going to be a co-fellow yes, heir. That's, that's Ephesians, John. Equal with the Gentiles. Deal with the language of 1125. Deal with the language of 1125. Oh, but that there's a period of time when the Gentiles are, are going to enjoy the blessings of God. Israel as a nation is set aside. That's all it's saying. But that's not the mystery of the Old Testament But that's scripture. what Paul says is the mystery. He identifies it. The language right, okay. demands that. You're confusing. Okay. okay. The last thing is this, and then you're done. All right. When you use the word covenant, you have to have one more. We have to have the Jewish Jewish believer. We have to have him give a question. True Israel. 
Okay. <laughs> you keep talking about the covenant made with the nation that has to be fulfilled. In a, a book of Hebrews, it says, A new covenant I'll make with the house of Israel, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers when I led them out of the land. Is there a covenant with Israel there, but then there's also another covenant. Paul is contrasting the old Mosaic covenant with the new covenant. And is that old Mosaic covenant totally set aside? Yes, I believe it is. Then what covenant are these other blessings? What I said earlier, Paul is quoting passages, samples from the prophets from the Abrahamic, Davidic, and new covenants. Okay, so that the Abrahamic covenant is the one that builds the, the promises to Israel. Mm -hmm. But Hebrews says the covenant made with Israel at the coming out of the land of Egypt and that's the that specifies the Mosaic covenant in view not the Abrahamic okay gotcha one last question and then we're finished regarding uh, verse 26 eleven twenty-six, and so all Israel shall be saved do I understand you to mean according to what you said that that remnant is the same remnant that will say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. No, and I, don't also, a, I don't say it's a remnant. I say it's the people as a whole, all Israel, okay. not the remnant, all uh, Israel. All right. And yes, I do relate it to the prophecies. Okay. Then, are you saying that that remnant is the nation in fulfillment of Zechariah 12, 10, mm -hmm. verse finished to 13, mm -hmm. 9? Then well, when the two-thirds are cut off, the one-third that's left will be a remnant? I'm not prepared to go all the way to chapter 13. I'm, I'm just not ready for it. I am saying it is in reference, I, I am seeing it in reference to 1210 though, yes. That Israel is turning and seeing her Messiah, not missing her this time. Okay, and will you look it up to 13.9 and we'll talk later? Certainly, be happy to. Or are we going to talk I would, I would enjoy it. <laughs> well, tell you the truth, my mouth is like cotton and okay. I would like to get a drink. You got Sit it, down. thank you. You're done. Sit down. be the strongest point for a particular view. And uh, that's why we took this particular passage, because anybody who is a premillennial dispensationalist, I think, will agree that this would be a passage that he would be very happy to take. Tomorrow, uh, we take a passage from Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews chapter 8, which would obviously be a passage that an older dispensationalist could not possibly handle progressive dispensations, that's an entirely different thing. But we did that deliberately so that we might get exegetically into the scriptures themselves. And then we wanted to challenge our exegesis and then see how that affects our views on millennialism. And so far, I think it has been a very profitable time. Remember last year, Chris told us the story of the fellow who was found a guy ready to jump off the bridge. And... Uh, guy came up to him and tried to get to him. He says, don't come up, I'll jump. And he says, no, no, jump. He says, I don't have a friend in the world. He says, yes, you do. And he started to talk to him. And he said, are you a Christian? He said, yes. He said, so am I. What kind of a Christian? Are you a Catholic? Protestant? No, I'm a Protestant. And he says, well, what, what kind of a Protestant? I'm a Baptist. What kind of a Baptist? I'm a Southern Baptist. So am I. And he kept, everything was the same. And, and he kept getting closer and closer and closer. And finally, he got right up to where he was almost ready to get a hold of him. And he says, what's your view in prophecy? He says, I'm a pre-mill dispensationist. He says, so am I. 
And he says, are you a mid-trip or post-trip? He says, I'm a mid-trip. The guy says, I'm a pre-trip and pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> some of these fellows. <laughs> and then he gave it up hope and we had to give it up on you, <laughs> But our, our goal is really to understand each other. And that way we may be able to help each other. But we can't do that if we don't understand each other. The old Greeks, when they had their debating societies, you were not allowed to enter into discussion until you could say in your own words, to the other man's satisfaction, what he said and what he meant before you could enter into the debate. And if we could do that, we would eliminate a whole Amen. lot of problems. And I repeat the story I told last year, and I, I love it, and this will do is to get ready for lunch. Of the Roman Catholic, the, the Pope was going to run all the Jews out of Rome. And of course, the, the rabbi, he strenuously objected. And so finally the Pope says, we will have a silent debate and that will discover whether you can stay or go. And so they had a silent debate. And uh, the Pope, he goes like this. And the rabbi, he goes like this. And then the Pope, he goes like this. And the rabbi, he goes like this. And then the Pope took a glass of wine and blessed it and drank it. And the rabbi took an apple and blessed it and ate it. And the Pope says, that's it, you win, you can stay. So the rabbi left, and the cardinal said, the Pope, what was that all about? He said, well, he wanted to debate. He's orthodox. What do you mean? Said, well, I said, God is everywhere. And he said, yes, but God's right here. And I said, but there's only one true God. And he said, yes, and he's Jewish. And he said, but he's a free person. And he says, then I took the, the, the wine, which is an emblem of the communion cup, to show that it's through this man Christ that sin is taken out of the world. And he took the apple to show that through Adam, this foul sin came into the world. He says, orthodox as we are. So the Jew went on side and people said, what happened? He said, I don't know, but we can stay. And he said, what happened? He said, well, the Pope says, you Jews kind of got it here. <laughs> and I said, we're staying right here. <laughs> <laughs> he said, then the Pope says, I'll give you one week to get out of here. And he says, I said, we couldn't get out in three weeks. <laughs> he said, then what happened? He said, I don't know, we had lunch. <laughs> the scriptures with most Christians, you might as well have a silent debate. They just talk past each other, and they really don't listen. And I have changed my theology enough times down through the years that I'm beginning to learn to listen. I don't think I've had it all yet put together. I'm still learning. The best thing is that no matter which one of these views you take, it's talking about something that's going to happen after our Lord comes, and I'm going to be with him. Amen. 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 This dare not, dare not be a test of one's fellowship with another Christian. And that's what we're trying to establish. Amen. Okay. Harry, how do you feel? I feel like I'm going to be with Jesus forever. You grateful? I'm grateful. You grateful enough to thank the Lord for our Father, we 